Presented by the United States Sentencing Commission, this is Sentencing Practice Talk, a regular podcast for federal sentencing practitioners covering topics of interest. Here is your host, Rachel Pierce. Hello, and welcome to Sentencing Practice Talk. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, uh, Krista Rubin. Hello. Hi, Krista. Good morning. How good are morning. you? Good morning. It's good to see you. <laughs> we are starting today a series of podcasts <clears throat> that is designed to be a follow-up on our 2019 National Seminar. And so, you and I did the breakout on relevant conduct in sex offenses and other crimes against the person. Yes. Right? And we're going to talk about that, of course, because that's what we're here to talk about. Um, but I wanted to just sort of give a little bit of a background about how this came about, what our plan is with this series of podcasts, um, before we actually dive into our discussion about that breakout. So uh, I think many of the listeners probably are aware and know that over the last several years, we've been doing much more scenario-based training. Um, And I'm sure some of the listeners have have actually been to our training programs, including those that have gone to the national seminar recently. And so as a result of that, Those folks are aware that we've been using the audience response system. The clickers. The clickers, exactly. Um, And I personally love the clickers. I think we all enjoy using the clickers. Um, One of the reasons why it's so great is that it allows real-time feedback. So when we're doing scenario-based training and we're asking questions about different guideline issues, folks are responding via the clickers. Mm -hmm. And so it lets us know immediately who's getting things right and who's getting things wrong. Exactly. And so it allows us to sort of read the audience, figure out, you know, what we need to focus more on, what we need to just, maybe we can just keep it moving because everyone got this question right. And so I think it's good for us from that perspective, Mm -hmm. but I also think it's good for the participants um, for, for really the same reasons. They can see what they're getting right and what they're getting wrong. Right. And... Uh, one of the things I've noticed is that sometimes people don't know things like they think they know things. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting dynamic as well. Um, so the other thing that's great about the ARS system or the clickers is that we're able to capture that data and keep it and go back and look at it and analyze it and see, you know, what what exactly is going on with these answers? Are there trends? Um, you know, are things people getting wrong consistently? And so what we did when we came back from the national program that we looked at this data. And we realized that in a lot of the breakout sessions, there were folks that were struggling with some guideline issues. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, well, how can we, what can we do with this information? How can we make this a teachable moment, if you will? Right. So that we can sort of reinforce the concepts that we talked about at the national program. Um, Maybe even for folks who were there and they're listening again. I remember when I got back into the office, I got lots of calls on the helpline about some of the things that we talked about Absolutely. In our breakout stipulations and that type of thing. Right. Which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, hopefully what we can do with this series is, is even reach a wider audience, you know, because the folks that are attending our national program are obviously just a small fraction of those that are out there in the field practicing with the guidelines and in the judicial system. Right. So that's kind of our plan. I don't know if you have anything to add to where you know the groundwork that we're laying here. No, I think it's going to be a great series. It's going to be a great way to highlight the particular issues that we know people are finding challenging. So, mm-hmm. agreed. So, looking forward to it. All right, so let's jump right in then. Uh, I did mention that you and I did the breakout on the relevant conduct mm-hmm. in sex offenses and other crimes against the person. And I guess what what would you say are sort of the takeaways? 
Well, I think there were three primary areas that we identified that were challenging and Mm -hmm. people were struggling with. The first area involves the special instruction that we find in production of child pornography guidelines. It's also in the travel guideline Mm -hmm. and the prostitution guideline. So I think there it was clear mm-hmm. that there is some confusion about the application of that particular instruction. I would agree. And I think, honestly, that's was sort of the impetus behind the, the scenarios that we chose mm-hmm. because we're getting those calls on the helpline all the time. And we thought, okay, people are really struggling with this. So right. let's, let's get it out there. Let's give them some, some, some scenarios. Um, and if I remember correctly, all of them were helpline calls that we... Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. All of the scenarios we used were actual helpline calls we received. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. So that was the first area. Um, The second takeaway, I think, is when we were discussing pseudo counts Mm -hmm. and when you can and can't use them in guideline application. And then the third area, I think, was um, involving stipulations, how those impact guideline application and whether something is or is not a stipulation. Absolutely. And when I mentioned earlier that I was getting helpline calls after the national, that's what I got a lot of helpline calls on. Yes. Was what is a stipulation for purposes of 1B1.2? Right. And I think we've kind of blown a lot of people's minds on that aspect. So we're going to have to circle back with that. Yes. Um, But let's go ahead and talk about the first area that you mentioned, which is the special instruction. Mm -hmm. You said that there's one at... Production of child pornography, which is 2G 2.1. Right. There's also one in the prostitution guideline, 2G 1.1. Right. And then the travel guideline for the minors, 2G 1.3. Am I missing? No. Okay. Those are the only three. Right. So those are very problematic. And why is that? Well, so what the special instruction says, and we'll just start with that language, Mm -hmm. is that if the offense involves more than one minor, Mm -hmm. which is at 2G 1.3 and 2G 2.1, Chapter 3, Part D, multiple counts, shall be applied as if the persuasion, enticement, coercion, travel, or transportation to engage in prohibited sexual conduct of each victim have been contained in a separate count of conviction. Right. So what these special instructions are authorizing is application, additional application of that particular guideline when the offense involves multiple victims. So that's the key. Yes. What does offense mean? Right. And so offense, of course, is defined in 1B1.1. Mm-hmm. And offense means offense of conviction and all relevant conduct. Mm-hmm. And so for these offenses, when we're looking at the relevant conduct, we're looking at the acts that were committed during that particular offense of conviction in preparation for that particular offense of conviction or to avoid detection or responsibility for that particular offense of conviction. Mm -hmm. These offenses with these special instructions do not include same course of conduct, common scheme or plan. Mm -hmm. They don't operate like drug offenses. They don't operate like fraud offenses. And I think that's where people are getting stuck. I'm positive that's where people are getting stuck. And I, I personally think one of the reasons why is because, you know, with production, for example, production of child pornography offenses, you also see receipt and possession offenses alongside those. Right. And that guideline does operate under expanded relevant conduct. So you can use same course of conduct, common scheme or plan. Right. But but the offense conduct itself is so intertwined mm-hmm. that it's not intuitive 
that they would have different relevant conduct analysis going on. That's right. And I think that really contributes to a lot. People are just mind blown. They're like, wait a minute, I can use it for possession, but I can't for production. Right. Exactly. And I think also the key point is when in order for the special instruction to apply, the additional victim must be part of that instant offense of conviction. Correct. So if uh, a defendant is producing child pornography and that exact production involves two minor victims, Mm -hmm. that's when the special instruction applies. Exactly. It cannot apply if the offense of conviction describes production of child pornography on January 1st, Mm -hmm. but we know that the defendant on February 1st committed another act of production of child pornography Mm -hmm. because the offense of conviction is only for the January 1st conduct. There's only one victim. Right. And so so the relevant conduct. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you remember that I, I gave the analogy of, you know, think about relevant conduct in the context of a robbery offense. Right. And uh, I'm sure you also read some of the evaluations that we got. And one of them said that was a light bulb moment for me Mm -hmm. when you said, Oh, these kind of offenses have the same relevant conduct analysis as a robbery offense, everything clicked. Right. So hopefully reiterating that will be helpful for people because it's like everyone gets it in the context of a robbery offense. That's right. So that's why I thought, just think about it in the same way. Exactly. So exactly. hopefully that that's helpful. Yes. Well, and you know, we have other podcasts on mm-hmm. our webpage we that dive more mm-hmm. we do. deeply into the specifics regarding the analysis. Mm-hmm. And so for folks that want some additional information, I'd encourage them to listen to those in particular. Mm-hmm. That's great. Uh, so should we move on to the pseudo count? I discussion? think so. Okay. So one of the scenarios that we presented, we said that uh, the defendant pled guilty to one count of kidnapping. Mm-hmm. Not conspiracy to commit kidnapping, just kidnapping. Mm -hmm. And in the indictment, the indictment listed three victims. Mm -hmm. And we asked whether pseudo counts, meaning should a count be calculated for each victim cited in the the indictment? Should should they be calculated? Right, so pseudo count as if the defendant had been convicted of additional counts. Exactly. And a majority of our audience responded yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is not the correct answer. Right. Uh, so the part of the reason, well, the reason is in the kidnapping guideline, there is no special instruction like mm-hmm. we were just talking about. Right. Where if you have multiple victims uh, that occurred during that offense. Right. That you can break out the individual victims and then do a separate calculation of kidnapping for each one. Right. So there's no mechanism there. Right. This is also not a count of conspiracy. And under 1B1.2, it says where a defendant is convicted of conspiracy to commit multiple offenses, you then can treat it as if the defendant conspired to commit each one of those multiple offenses. Right, right. Resulting in additional calculations. Right. Neither of those things are true in that scenario. Mm -hmm. And so only one calculation of kidnapping is authorized. Right. And I think we also see that in the context of assault offenses or maybe uh, criminal sexual abuse offenses where someone's raped more than one victim. Right. Uh, It's the same type of thing. Absent a special instruction or a charge of conspiracy to commit more than one offense, there's no authorization within that 
guideline. That's right. And as we just discussed, even if there is a special instruction, it very narrowly applies. That's right. And we don't even have that. That's exactly right. In the kidnapping guideline. And also, we're not looking at same course of conduct, common scheme, or plan. Exactly. So in the one calculation of kidnapping, you the court would be selecting the victim, the the most severe conduct, right. depending upon which victim it was. Right. right. You can't sort of throw in all the specific offense characteristics for all three victims. Right, exactly. It's just you pick the one victim. Right, because you're limited to that during and preparation to avoid detection for that individual victim. Uh, I think I would point out here also that if you have a situation like that where there's more than one victim and there's no way to account for that in the guideline application, certainly that could be a reason for an upward departure, a recommendation of a, a sentence at the high end of the range, Absolutely. variance. It's not that the court has no way of accounting for that conduct. It's right. just that when you talk about the strict guideline application, it's not going to factor into Th- it. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I guess that's kind of a talking about conspiracy to commit more than one offense is, is a segue into, I think the last takeaway that you mentioned, which is this whole notion of stipulations and what is required at 1B1.2. Right. Which was a huge discussion. It really was. And so 1B1.2, I think we should point out this occurs prior to Mm -hmm. the determination of what is relevant conduct for a particular offense. Very good point. And so, 1B1.2 is telling us which guideline or guidelines Mm -hmm. will be used to calculate the defendant's offense. Mm -hmm. And so in 1B1.2, as I mentioned, there is this, um, the 1B1.2D, which talks about conspiracy to commit multiple offenses. Mm -hmm. And in that situation, you would have, um, the court would apply separate calculations for each offense that the defendant conspired to commit. Right. But there's also language in there about situations where the parties agree to stipulate to additional offenses mm-hmm. or a more serious offense. Right, right. And the question really is, what is a stipulation? Right. And I think that the way it's been described to me is a stipulation should not be a surprise right. to anyone. Right. All the parties are agreeing on this stipulation to an additional offense being used to calculate Mm -hmm. an additional calculation under the guidelines. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, for example, a stipulation to a more serious offense. Let's say the defendant pled to theft, but what really happened was the defendant committed a robbery. Mm -hmm. Well, the parties would agree that they will use the robbery guideline to calculate instead of the theft guideline. So there would have to be specific language yes. to that effect. So it's not like, uh, you know, the defendant would plead to a theft offense and then in the factual basis they would talk about how he robbed a bank. Right. And that would be sufficient. That's right. Yeah. It. This is a an agreement between the parties where everybody understands that this stipulation is going to be used to calculate the guidelines for the purpose of 1B1.2. Right. And I, I would at this point interject that I think it's really important when folks face this situation to, to go back and read those application notes. Because I think that the language in those application notes is pretty clear about what is required. Like you say, it's it can't be a surprise. Right. The parties have to agree. It has to be either written in the plea agreement or on the record. You know, it's not just 
a bunch of information thrown into a factual basis and let's apply the guidelines based on that. That's exactly right. And I, I want to back up to when to when you were talking about the conspiracy to commit more than one offense. There's also language in the application notes that talk about it's got to be real clear what those additional offenses are. Right. So that, again, sort of a higher standard that you're looking at so that if the court were sitting as a trier of fact, they would, in fact, convict the defendant of these additional offenses as part of this conspiracy. That's right. So there really has to be a lot of transparency. Absolutely. If you're going to be calc- – and if you think about it, it makes sense. Sure. Because you're, you're – exposing the court is exposing the defendant to more time that's a right. higher guideline range based on things that they haven't actually been convicted of that's right so i you know i think everybody needs to keep that in mind absolutely and there's lots of case law on the issue too absolutely. Mm-hmm. you know that talks about you know what constitutes a stipulation under mm-hmm. 1b 1.2 sure. and so i'd encourage our listeners to to look there also mm-hmm. all right well i think that sort of wraps it up. If you have any other final thoughts, those were the three takeaways. I would agree. Uh, and I, like I say, keep getting helpline calls. It can't reinforce it enough. Um, hopefully this, as, as I mentioned, will reach even a wider audience because I know that people are struggling absolutely with these issues. Yeah. So thanks a lot for being here today. I appreciate discussing this with you. Well, thanks for having me. No problem. Hope to see you soon. All right. All right. This wraps up our episode of Sentencing Practice Talk today brought to you by the United States Sentencing Commission. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to check back often for new topics. Sentencing Practice Talk, a regular podcast on federal sentencing issues. Please be advised that information provided by the Commission staff is offered to assist in understanding and applying the sentencing guidelines. The information does not necessarily represent the official position of the Commission, 